Good morning. Hi, everybody. Great. To, hey, there you go. Well, that was a very lively hello. Unexpected at the 11. You guys are usually kind of like the brunch crowd, and you're kind of hungry and thinking about frittatas and scrambles at Hash House and stuff. But here you are. Lots of energy. And uh, great to, to, I can't see you, but I'm so glad you're here. If you're watching online, I know we got folks out in the tent as well. And uh, thank you so much for coming. If we've never met, my name's Jay and I'm a part of the team here. And today we are wrapping up what has been about a four-week journey through a series that we've called Called Out, which sounds, I understand, sounds aggressive, but the, the reason the title of the series has been called out is because the series has been a month-long exploration of the church. Like, what, what are we talking about when we talk about the church? What do we mean? Um, and the reason it's called called out is because in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, uh, the original language of the New Testament, Koine Greek, the word for church is the Greek word ekklesia, which is a combination of two words, ek, meaning out of, and kaleo, which means called. And so literally, you guys, the word church in the original context meant called out or people called out. And so we've been exploring what it means for the church to be a people who've been called out to love God together, called out of selfishness and pride to love one another deeply, and called out of a, a time of a culture of division and vitriol to love our neighbors really well. And today, as we sort of conclude the series, I just want to do another big picture 30,000-foot view, overview, and ask the question, okay, now as we conclude, truly, what is the church? Like, what are we talking about when we talk about the church? Now, the answer to that question might feel obvious to many of us, but when we dig a little bit deeper, what we realize is that um, there are a wide variety of answers, at least in, in people's minds. Uh, the 18th century politician and writer and philosopher Thomas Paine, who was actually one of um, the people who helped pen the American Constitution, uh, in a book that he wrote called The Age of Reason in the 18th century, he says this. He says that I do not believe in the creed of any church that I know of. My own mind is my own church. My own mind is my own church. Now that sounds poetic and it sounds really nice, but it poses the question, is he right? Like, is that what church is? Is church whatever you make of it in your mind? Most of us at least sitting in this room and most of us watching online, we would probably say no. I mean, the fact that you're here, whether it is watching online or here in the room, the fact that you're here, whether you believe in Jesus or not, whether you're religious or not, the fact that you are here tells me that you at least in some way believe that the church is some form of a gathering of people. 
So most of us watching online or right here, we would probably say, no, like Thomas Paine is wrong. The church is not something you make up in your own head. It's like it's a gathering of people or maybe some of us think it's a building. Maybe some of us think it's, you know, like uh, relationships, close relationships with others. There's a wide variety of what people think the church is. And I just, I want to share with you just a few that I think are really common in culture. Some people think that the church is mostly just like whatever it is I want it to be. In other words, uh, often the way you'll see this play out in social media is you'll see a picture like this of feet kicked up, you know, maybe a favorite cup of coffee uh, or a glass of wine and a book, and that, which is fine. This is really beautiful, right? But then people will say, like in the description of the photo, they'll say something along the lines of like, this is my church today. Right? If you just go on Instagram, there are plenty of photos like this. This is my church today. So we have to ask the question, is, is this person right? Is this church? Now, this is definitely in many ways a good thing. I mean, the Bible itself is chock full of examples of why like Sabbath and rest and uh, leaning into the bodily, God-given bodily rhythm of work and rest, work and rest. All of that stuff is important. And when done appropriately and responsibly, it can be a very godly thing, a rejuvenating thing for the soul. And so rest and relaxation and like picturesque getaways to the lake, these are not bad. It's wonderful. But is it church? That's the question. Is it church? Or sometimes people will say, well, no, I actually think that the church is a vehicle for social change. I mean, particularly in recent years with all of the brokenness, both um, individual and systemic, that we've seen all over our country and our world, many people have said, well, I actually think that the Christian church, primarily what it is, is a vehicle to enact social systemic change in the world. Again, not a bad thing. There is much evil in our world. There is much brokenness, again, both personally and systemically in our country and in our world. And Christians are certainly called to stand for the common good and to come alongside those who are hurting, to come alongside those who are disenfranchised and disadvantaged as best as we can. But we have to ask the question, is this church. When we look into the scriptures, is this what the church is really primarily about? Is it a vehicle for social change? Or many people today think that the church is just an event or an experience. And most people wouldn't say it this way, but, but really what they mean intrinsically is that the church is a form of entertainment. It's, it's Christian content that I enjoy from time to time. Many people think of church this way. Essentially, we go to church for some good music and a great kids program and some good stuff for my teenagers to do and, and to make a few friends and uh, listen to somebody talk for 35 minutes and I hope it's not that boring, right? Like we, we go to church, we think of church this way. And in fact, a lot of people today make their decision on which church they'll connect to based on the entertainment value. And they won't say it that way. We don't use words like that because it sounds too crude. But in reality, that's sort of what we do. It's like, which church is, has better whatever, fill in the blank, music, 
kids programs, preaching, all those things. Like, what is the level of the quality of content? And then I will base which church I go to for that. Now, again, this is not bad. Churches should have great music and great preaching and great programs for kids and great programs for teenagers. We try our absolute best here at Westgate to do all of those things. Sometimes we do it well, sometimes not so well, often in between. But the reality is we're pursuing excellence. But is that primarily what the church is? Is that what the Bible tells us that the church is? Again, none of these things are bad. None of them are bad. They're all really good. Rest, relaxation, getting away from the mad rush of crazy Silicon Valley life to unwind and to detach and maybe even to detox is a beautiful thing. Again, standing up for um, the disenfranchised and the disadvantaged to, to fight against systemic and personal brokenness in our country and in our world, to come alongside those who are hurting, to name the wrongs and the evils in our world is not a bad thing. In fact, it is a very Christian thing. And... Great music, great teaching, great programs for our children, great events, making some friends, not bad things. Really wonderful things. But the question is, is that what church is? Is that what the Bible tells us that the church primarily is about? I would suggest to you that all of those versions, those renderings of church, while not necessarily bad, are at least incomplete. That yes, those components are vital to the life of a community of faith. But not any single one of those things is what the Bible means when it talks about the church. And so before we get to what the Bible shows and reveals to us about what church really is, I want to ask the question, how did we get here? Why is it that so many of us think that the church is so many different things? The writer, Carl Truman, he says this about the world in which we live. He's talking specifically about the modern Western world. He says that in the modern Western world, we all live in a world where it is increasingly easy to imagine that reality is something that we can manipulate according to our own wills and desires. Self-creation is a routine part of the modern social imaginary. What Truman is talking about is the culture of individualism and consumerism in which we live. Now, um, don't be offended here. I am not saying you specifically are all about yourself and all you want to do is hoard wealth and riches. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, and, and um, data tells us this is true, that you and I live in a culture that is saturated with individualism and consumerism. Whether you yourself are hyper-individualistic and consumeristic is beside the point. The reality is the waters in which we swim are individualism and consumerism. It is undeniable and there's nothing really that you can do about it. That is the cultural air we breathe. Now why does that matter? Individualism and consumerism is, again, based on Truman's assessment here. It's about my will and my desire and self-creating my reality. 
This is one of the reasons why there are so many different versions of church. It's one of the reasons why what people think the church is varies from person to person so much. Because in an individualistic, consumeristic culture, anything can be whatever you want it to be. That's the whole point. Everything is endlessly customizable and personalized. And in fact, in the digital age, if you think about it, you don't even do the personalizing yourself. Computer algorithms personalize your digital experience for you. You ever have that experience where you're talking to your friend about potentially buying a Toyota Tundra and then you go on Facebook and there's an advertisement for a Toyota Tundra? You know what I'm talking about? And you're like, they're listening to me. They are listening to you. It's creepy, you guys. It's so scary, right? This is the air we breathe. It's all about you. Your experiences are curated for you. And it's about consuming, consumption. Just show you some examples, just a couple out of like a myriad of examples I could show you about individualism and consumerism in our culture. Several years ago, um, a research team did a massive research study because Google actually put together a database of well over 5 million books and journal entries written over the course of several um, hundred years. Over 5 million books. And this research team did a really fascinating study. They try to track from 1960 to today, so the last 50, 60 years, they try to track in American literature, both books and journals and magazines, what words were on the decline and what words were on the incline, like increasing in use. Because they, they realize that the sorts of words we use in books and literature reveals to us a little bit of the sort of social psyche or consciousness. Make sense? Okay. So since 1960, in the last 50 to 60 years, let me show you some of the words that have been most dramatically on the decline. So less and less often you see these words in literature in America in the last 50, 60 years. Words like community. United, band together, phrases like common good, words like virtue, decency, and compassion. And in their place, you know what sorts of words and phrases have been increasing in the last 50, 60 years? Words and phrases like personalized, self, stand out, unique, phrases like I come first, I can do it myself, preferences. This is just data. Go to a bookstore. You remember what those were? <laughs> Bookstores? Go to a bookstore. There's like a Barnes & Noble on Stevens Creek. There is, ironically, an Amazon brick-and-mortar bookstore at Santana Row. It's really cool, actually, if you want to go there. But go to a bookstore sometime and go to the staff and ask them, which section in your bookstore sells the most books? What will they tell you? The self-help section. Like, by a lot. Why? Because in an individualistic society, we believe all I need is me, myself, and I. That anything I want, anything I desire can be accomplished and attained just by me. And that human life and experience need to, needs to be curated and personalized for my preferences. This is the cultural air we breathe. We also live in what is the most consumeristic society in human history. Now again... Do not feel guilty. I'm not talking about you, although maybe I am talking about you. 
Either way, what I am certainly talking about is the cultural air we breathe. This is not about a guilt trip about having a lot or having a little. That is not the point. Jesus is really clear throughout the Gospels. It's actually not the amount that you have, but the amount you are willing to give, regardless of what you have. So don't feel guilty. Here's the thing, though. Consumerism is the air we breathe. Do you know that the United States and Western Europe, not all of Europe, just Western Europe and the United States make up 12% of the global population, but we consume 60% of the product. Do not tell me consumerism is not the air we breathe. Never before, they've studied this, never before has there been this sort of disparity in consumerism in world history where such a small percentage of the global population consumes such a large amount of the stuff. Let's get way more personal. I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old, two little kids, right? Some of you have little kids. Okay, get this. American children make up only 3%, 3% of the global child population, and yet they consume 40% of the toys, you guys. Come to my house and you will see this bear out in real life. If I had a dollar for every Lego I've stepped on in the last six years, I'd be Jeff Bezos living on Mars. I'd be so rich. Like, why do my kids have so many Legos? Why? They just always build the same thing. It's just a little giraffe. Like, why do you need so many Legos for the same little thing that you build every single day? Why? Because I'm consumeristic. I was just, Jenny and I were just at Target with our kids yesterday. And this is so bad, you guys. So if anyone should feel guilty, it should be me. My, I have this bad habit. My son sits in the, you know, the thing. What is, what is it called? The cart. Okay. I'm, ba- I'm bad with English. My son sits in the cart. And, uh, and every time he's like, you know, he's a little boy, three-year-old boy. He's big into trucks, you know. Um, he wants to be a garbage truck for Halloween this year, actually. So I don't know how that's going to work. And... Um, and my daughter wants to be a fly, which is really funny. <laughs> be a garbage truck, she'll be a fly, like running around. Um, but uh, he just really loves garbage trucks. But uh, I don't know what that means for his future. But anyways, so he sees these trucks and he's like constantly grabbing, reaching over the cart and grabbing. And this is how consumeristic I am, you guys. I see these trucks and without even looking at the price, my, all, my reaction always is like, you want that? You want it? Should we get it? And my wife is the one that has to be like, dude, no, right? Like, he doesn't need 83 more trucks or whatever. But this is like the air we breathe. It's just so easy to grab and to take and to have and to hoard. Okay, so I share all of this with you because this is a talk about the church, not about my family shopping habits, right? But I share all of this with you because it is critically important that we recognize the cultural air we breathe. We breathe individualism and consumerism. And when we live that way, our values get warped. They get warped and distorted in really subtle but steady and dangerous and insidious ways. The writer Brendan Manning puts it this way, that in an individualistic, consumeristic society, success is measured not in terms of love, wisdom, and maturity, by the size, but by the size of one's pile of possessions. This is why we have these warped misunderstandings of what the church is. 
One of the reasons why we believe, some people believe that the church is just about a restful, picturesque, isolated getaway is because in an individualistic, consumeristic society, we begin to value comfort over commitment. We believe that being comfortable is the thing that will lead to a meaningful, fruitful, beneficial life. But the reality is comfort doesn't get us there. Commitment does. Anything great that's ever been done by anyone in human history has been done not comfortably, but through difficult and painful commitment. This is true of your own life. And yet, in an individualistic, consumeristic society, we lean into comfort. And so then, church just becomes about what I want. This Sunday, I happen to want a relaxing vacation on the lake, which is fine. If you need that, you should do that. But do not call it church. I mean, watch church, sure. And that's a beautiful thing. You're watching, right? Maybe you're watching from a lake. Do not feel guilty. <laughs> Maybe this is you with your feet kicked up and like uh, coffee, and you're like, oh no. <laughs> Don't feel guilty. But I will say this. Belonging to a church does not mean carrying the word with you wherever you go so that it wraps itself around you like a warm blanket. Church is a particular people in a particular place doing a particular thing. More on that in a little bit. But this, this has dangerous side effects, you guys. Because the more we begin to think that the church is about what I want, then it leads us to the next thing. Because in an individualistic, consumeristic society, and you see this a lot at the intersection of our individualism, consumerism, and social media and the digital age, making a point becomes way more important than making an actual difference. We begin to believe that what really matters is that I, as an individual, stand out a particular way. And I want to get there as comfortably as I can, which is almost always by typing 240 characters on your phone and letting the Twitter sphere know that you stand in opposition to X, Y, and Z. And all the while, as the masses are making points, there are a few people who are typically not on social media, on the ground, in the trenches, making an actual difference in the real lives of real people. You get what I'm saying? That is way harder to do. But in an individualistic society where we want to stand out amongst the masses, it, we do the comfortable thing, the easy thing. And the way this affects the way we think about the church is the church just gets wrapped up in our sort of Twitter sphere mentality. That if the church doesn't endorse what I endorse, then that's not really the Christian church. That if the church doesn't support the candidate I support, then they're not really followers of Jesus. That if the church doesn't say exactly what I wanted to say, when I wanted to say it, how I wanted to say it, then that's not really the church. Listen, I, I'm going to be very direct here. Whoever sits in the White House today and whoever will sit in the White House in 2024, and whoever will sit in the White House for years and years to come, that does not determine the end of the human story. The most powerful throne in the world does not reside in Washington, D.C. It resides in heaven, God's space, with Jesus the Son at the right hand and the Father on the throne. 
As a Christian, our calling is not to make points online. Our calling is to embody the truth that there is only one king who sits on the throne of the universe, and he has been since Genesis 3, rewriting the human story, getting us to the place where there is human flourishing for the common good and for his glory. There is not a government on the planet that will get us there. There is not enough ingenuity or intelligence or money or whatever that will get us there. God and only God can get us there. So do not ever think that the church is a vehicle that is designed to endorse your particular issue. The church is a community designed and wrapped around God's plan that has been unfolding since the beginning of time and will someday come to fruition at the end of time. That's the church. Finally... In a consumeristic culture, we begin to value shallow entertainment over and above true joy. This is when we begin to ask the question, well, like, what do I like about that church? I like the music, or I like the preaching, or I like the programs, or I like the people. They look like me. They sound like me. We have the same interests. And when that church no longer offers you what you like, it's just like scrolling through Netflix. You just hit stop and go to the next thing on your queue. Now listen, what I am not saying is that you shouldn't find a church where you can really lean in and be a part of what God is up to there. You should. If you need to do that work, do that work. What I am saying, however, is that the paradigm through which you make that decision should not be about how much that church entertains you. Here's what I would say to you. If you're here at Westgate because we're more entertaining than the church you used to go to, you should pray about going back. If you're here at Westgate because our lights are glitzier and our sound sounds better and the preaching relate, is more relatable or whatever, right? And it's just feel, it's like, no, I just like it more. You should seriously pray, is this where God has you? Because he may have you here, but I guarantee you this. It's not because God wants to entertain you better here. Nobody up here is a broadcaster or a performer. We're all just broken, sinful people trying to navigate this life and follow Jesus as faithfully as possible. If you want to be a part of that story with us, we are thrilled you're here. And if you're here and you sense deep in your spirit, God is saying something to you. There's a small church down the street that could really use someone like you. Your gifts, your skills, your passion. And you just sense like God's calling you there. No guilt. If God is calling you elsewhere, we will bless you and celebrate you. This church is not really about this church. This church is about the kingdom of God breaking out all over the Bay Area. And that's going to happen through this church and through tons of churches. That's our hope. That's our prayer. It's not about entertaining us. It's not about entertaining you. It's about discovering deep joy. In a culture of individualism and consumerism, 
The writer Edwin Freeman, he puts it this way, Edwin Friedman, we are becoming a society of skimmers who constantly take from the top without adding significantly to its essence. What it means to be the church is to add to the essence, to give yourself to a community of faith. Individualism and consumerism sells us this lie that it will inevitably lead to deep satisfaction. But what we know from experience is that as we continue chasing the false promises of individualism and consumerism, we actually grow weary and exhausted. But the weariness and the exhaustion gives us an opportunity. The writer Mark Sayers says this, The cultural exhaustion opens the doorways to the human heart when the cultural scripts we live by are exposed as frauds, delivering bad fruit, new possibilities begin to emerge and we are approaching such a moment in the West. And so what is that opportunity? For us today, it is exploring what it actually means to be the church, what the Bible tells us that the church is. First, uh, I just want to point you to a resource. Um, You may not know, but we have um, a podcast called The Afterword Podcast. You can find it on uh, iTunes or Spotify. Um, It's all the stuff from the sermon that doesn't make it into the sermon because we're limited on time. I would encourage you, if you want to do like a deep dive into what the church is, what the Bible says about the church, I would highly encourage you to go listen to The Afterword Podcast. That will be posted tomorrow morning. Um, and there's a long conversation there about what the, what, the church, like what the Bible very specifically says about the church. But for our intents and purposes, I want to go to Acts chapter 2, which is kind of the go-to place most people go when they talk about the church. Because that's where we see the first description of the early Christian church. And it begins this way. It says that they, the Christians, devoted themselves. And we'll just stop three words in, you guys. Because right there is like a diametric opposition to the age of consumerism and individualism. They did not consume from, they devoted to. The word devoted in the original language, Greek, is a word that means to persist or to remain or to stay loyal. Does this sound like culture today? No. They devoted themselves. First and foremost, the Christian church was a group of people who leaned into devotion and commitment, not consumption and individualism. And what did they devote themselves to? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, that means partnership or participation with one another, to the breaking of bread, which means that they ate together. And here's the thing we miss. In the first century world, who you ate with was a very big deal. It was a way of identifying yourself belonging to a particular group of people. You did not just eat with anybody. That was a dangerous thing, actually. You would be very intentional about who you ate with. And so what that means is not just that they just shared meals together. It means that they publicly declared a sort of belonging to one another as followers of Jesus. And they devoted themselves to prayer. And in the devotion of these early Christians, we discover what the church is meant to be. And the early church was not perfect. They had problems. But they provide for us what I would call an ecclesiological blueprint. In other words, a blueprint for how we might think about what the church actually is. It's not about what I want or what I endorse or what I like. It is about, first and foremost, devotion, 
committing yourself to a community and specifically committing ourselves to teaching the word of God and to prayer, talking and communicating individually and communally to God, to fellowship, relationship with one another, learning to love and support each other and to the breaking of bread, literally sharing meals, but also identifying ourselves with one another as a new sort of people in the world. That was the church. What does this mean, again, in the sort of hyper-individualism and consumerism of the day? It means that the church is not about what I want, but rather that the church is a community offering us what we need. Look at Acts 2, 43 to 45. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. At the time, this was about literal need, like food and water and drink and shelter. Now, for us living in the Silicon Valley, for most of us, that's not an issue. You don't need someone to put food on your table or give you water to drink or provide you shelter. For some of us, it is an issue. It's one of the reasons why at Westgate we have like a, a pretty robust benevolence fund where we're able to come alongside people in actual need. Many, many of you are generous to that fund, which has allowed us to literally come to the, like the physical aid of those in actual need. It's a beautiful thing. But for most of us, that's not the issue. But make no mistake, we have needs. Maybe food is not an issue, but in the Silicon Valley, friendship is an issue. Maybe having a home or a house is not an issue, but in a culture like ours, true belonging is an issue. And the church is not a place that gives you what you want all the time. It is a place, a community that offers you what you need, friendship, belonging into the family of God for the lonely and the isolated. And then the story continues. What do we read? Again, in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then in verse 47, we see that as they did this, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What we see is that the church is not a community that endorses whatever individual person wants the church to endorse. Listen, in the first century world, when the early church was on the rise, there were lots of political issues they could have endorsed. There were lots of Jewish subgroups that were part doing particular things to like fight against the Roman Empire or to fight against other Jews or Gentiles. I mean, there were lots of social issues and lots of politically motivated movements. And there was, there's evidence that there was pressure on the Christian church to acquiesce to those political and social movements. But what did the church actually do? Instead of trying to make big grand points socially, they just made a real difference in real people's lives. They just fed the hungry. They embraced the lonely. They cared for the orphans. Did you know that orphanages and hospitals, their, their birth is the Christian movement? Did you know this? You know how orphanages came about? This is a total aside. In the Greco-Roman world, when children were born with deformities, it was the right of the father to literally throw the child away. So what they would do is they would take the child with a handicap and literally discard them in the front of their house. And then Roman officials would come and throw them into a pit and burn them alive. That sounds really harsh, right? You know why we have orphanages today? Because the Christians began picking these children up and caring for them. 
They didn't go on social media and talk about how egregious this law was and how we need to march and make a difference and change the law. They just went and actually picked up children and cared for them. And listen, I am not saying marching and doing all of the political stuff is bad. It can be very, very helpful. But if that's all we're interested in, making a point, instead of doing the hard work of making a difference, we're missing the point. The church is not about what I endorse. The church is a community where God's plan unfolds. And his plan always from the beginning until the end will be ultimately for many to be saved. And finally, Acts 2, 46 to 47. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Gladness and sincerity, enjoying the favor of all the people. The church is not a place where I get what I like. The church is a community where we experience eventually true joy. Like real, deep, abiding joy that only comes about by leaning into the life of one another. Relationship. I just have to say one thing as an aside um, pastorally. Some of us are listening or watching online or in the room, and we're asking the question, well, this is all well and good, Jay, but I've been abused by the church. Like, I've been really damaged by the church. And you're telling me to lean into the church, to be devoted to the church. Listen, there is a lot in culture today um, a lot of stories that are bubbling up to the surface of people that I've long admired. People who, when I was starting out in ministry, I would watch them speak at conferences and I'd read their books. And they deeply shaped me and um, challenged me and in many ways helped me become the sort of leader and pastor that I am. And it has been heartbreaking and jarring and shocking to see story after story come out about these men who did atrocious things behind the scenes abusive stuff. Here's what I would tell you. If you have experienced spiritual, physical, or emotional abuse in the church, I'm sorry. I am so deeply sorry. And I'm heartbroken for you. And here's the other thing I would say. Definitively. Broken people make up the church. There are broken people in the church. Leaders in the church are not protected from that reality. Leaders are also broken. And sometimes leaders do atrocious things. So if that is you, if you've experienced abuse and trauma and heartache at the hands of churches and church leadership, I am sorry, and that is not the way of Jesus. That man or that woman may have exerted the authority of Christ in the abuse. But that is not the way of Jesus. That's not actually the authority of Christ. Jesus himself would never put you in harm's way that way. Here's the thing. I have friends who come from really broken families where there was abuse at the hands of a father or a mother. I have several friends like this. One of the most inspiring things I've experienced is watching friends 
siblings who have siblings who all collectively grew up in a family where there was abuse from the parents. I have several friends where the siblings rallied together and instead of being frayed and pulled apart because of the brokenness of their family, they gather, they gather together, they bind themselves to one another and they say no more. That legacy of abuse and pain and trauma, it ends with us. And instead of being broken apart by the abuse, they lean into one another and rewrite the story of their family. I have several friends, siblings, who've done this. It's one of the most beautiful and inspiring things I've ever seen. You and I, as broken as the church has been, you and I can rewrite the story by God's grace. We can rewrite the story together if we would lean in and step in toward one another, as risky and scary as that might seem. It's one of the reasons why we have, and this is very practical, but it needs to be practical. It's one of the reasons why we invite you to take next steps here. It's one of the reasons why we have the next steps table outside. Because wherever you are, whether you're brand new to church and faith or you've been around but you really need to connect into community or you're you're really connected and now maybe God's calling you to give of yourself and to pour out. Wherever you are, there is a next step for you. And whatever that next step is, that is your way of declaring that together we can rewrite the story. Mark Sayers again puts it this way. He says that the church begins when a disparate and disheveled group of very ordinary people crying out to God are filled with his presence. And at every moment the church has been renewed and revived, we discover the same phenomenon. A person or a handful of people who have gotten to the end of themselves, who cannot tolerate it anymore, who fall at the feet of Christ and are filled with his presence, who become infectious agents of the kingdom in the world. Even if you've been hurt and scarred by the church, First, there is healing for you here. You are welcome here, and we want to come alongside you in your pain. We invite you, wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you've done or whatever been, whatever's been done to you, our invitation to you is to not lean back but to lean in, to take whatever next step God's calling you to take, Not to individually consume good Christian products, but to devote yourself to a family of believers, which is hard work, and it's messy, and it's complicated, and you're going to rub shoulders with people that you don't really like initially. But in doing so, God will form us into a family, and that's how you and I, by God's grace, rewrite the story of the church together. We rewrite it by choosing what we need over what we want, by participating in God's plan over our personal agendas, by seeking true joy instead of shallow entertainment. You and I rewrite the story of the church by gathering when it'd be easier to scatter, by contributing when it'd be easier to consume, by giving when it'd be easier to get. We rewrite the story of the church together by loving God, one another, and our neighbors more fully when it'd be easier to love just me, myself, and I. 
You and I, as broken and sinful and insecure, frail and flawed as we are, by God's grace and in his immense power and strength, we can rewrite the story of the church together, not by changing the church or reforming the church or deconstructing the church, but by simply being the church together, fully, graciously, sacrificially. When I think about that, when I think about us becoming the body, the the church, it's hard for me to not think about communion. The fact that Christ gave his body so that we might now become his body. So you all received um, your communion packets on your way in. And as we take the bread and the cup this morning, I want to invite us to do something. Um, I want to invite us to uh, prayerfully engage in a liturgy together a sort of read and response prayer. So grab your communion element, and we'll take it uh, a bit later as we continue to sing and worship. But I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, um, you can take the communion uh, as we sing in a little bit. And if you're not, that's okay. Um, You can just kind of sing along with us. But wherever you are, whoever you are, I just want to invite you to stand with us. Just stand. And... um, If you need uh, the communion elements, you can come up to the front. I think some of our ushers are stopping by and bringing you some as well. Um, We're going to have this liturgy up on the screen. And I will read prayerfully um, the portions that say leader. And then all of you, all of us collectively together out loud, let's read out loud as our commitment as we center our hearts and minds um, the portions that say everyone. And then we'll sing and take the bread and the cup together. Together as God's people... We gather at the table of God with gratitude, longing, and hope. We lift up our hearts to you, O God. As we take this bread and cup, Lord, we come before you bearing our joys and suffering, hunger and satisfaction, doubts and certainties. We lay down our lives before you, O God. We thank you, Christ our King, for the infinite gift of your life, your love, your peace, your victory over sin and death. We praise and exalt you, Christ, our King. As we take this bread and cup, your body broken and your blood shed, we receive this gift as one people, one church, one body. Make us one people, one church, one body, Christ, our King. Amen. We're going to sing and respond, and I welcome you and invite you to take the bread and the cup as you're ready.